Welcome to Music Lessons, the podcast where we explore the analogous principles of music and growth by interviewing top musicians. I'm your host, Andy Likens. My background is in music and scaling a music team at a fast-paced tech company. As someone who loves to learn and grow, I'm fascinated by the mental frameworks and approaches of musicians and how they can apply to our lives beyond just music. Whether you're a curious music lover or a lifelong learner, this podcast is for you. Chileski has been paving her own way in music for nearly three decades. She has fronted diverse bands, from the wildly popular Minneapolis-based Americana rock band Tina and the B-Sides, to groups that range from rock to classic R&B to punk. Tina has shared the stage with St. Vincent, Patty Griffin, Robert Ellis, Jeff Bridges, Doors guitarist Robbie Krieger, Etta James, and Double Trouble, just to name a few. Tina has been called a smart, sensitive, earthy singer-songwriter with a superb voice, and she's one of my favorite people to see perform live. You have to go see her whenever you get a chance, and it doesn't matter what genre she's performing or what type of music she's exploring, it's definitely worth your time. Please enjoy my conversation with Tina Shaleski. Tina Shaleski, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Andy. I'm so glad you could come here today. And just for the people listening, we've known each other for a little while. Yeah. Through sort of a mutual friend, I guess. And um, I'm so excited to have you on here. You are one of my favorite people generally, but also certainly one of my favorite musicians to see live. So I'm so glad you're you're here. Thanks for coming. Oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So I would just want to start off by talking a little bit about your background, because I think your path through to where you are today is super interesting. So can you just talk a little bit about your early days with the B-sides or maybe even right before the B-sides? Yeah, so I'm from originally from Minnesota, and I grew up in this little suburb, like about 25 miles south of Minneapolis in the 80s, and but music and you know you could still hear a lot prince was coming up and all these things so music was a very big thing coming from that city and my mom loved music music was just all around and so what you know what most young kids do my brother and i formed a little band in my mom's basement and started playing music and there was this we just started making demo tapes and whatnot and there was this band, a very popular band in Minneapolis called Urban Gorillas. And they had on underground radio stations, they had a huge following and and all this. And we gave a demo tape to them. And he said, yeah, we're playing at 7th Street Entry, which is 7th Street Entry was the punk rock club that's attached to First Avenue. So it was very cool and very exciting that we got asked to do this. We didn't even have a band name at the time. So I, you know, this is, (laughs) I grew up, one of my phases that I went through was Adam and the Ants, you know, but not the Goody Two Shoes, but more the previous Adam and the Ants and loved that band and his whole punk thing that he was doing. So we needed a band name and my brother said, well, why don't we just take 
the B-sides, like let's just call it T and the B-sides. And I'm like, oh God, I don't want to because I don't want my name attached in case we suck. I don't want anybody to, I don't want my <laughs> name attached to this. But we didn't know what to do. We got the gig, so it's fine. Let's just call it T and the B-sides. And we did our first gig at 7th Street Entry and I think it was 1984, all underaged, but it was incredible. And so that's how we sort of started and just started playing in basements and playing like school dances and trying to get you know like college parties and things like that in Minneapolis and yeah it was a really interesting time I felt really lucky to be in Minneapolis at that time starting and and starting music I guess so are you rooted do you think of yourself as like rooted musically in punk like is that where you're you began your adventure I think a little bit because my sister was a music major, so she could read music, could play piano, play oboe. I barely know how to play my guitar. And so <laughs> punk music, I gravitated towards that a bit because of I love the attitude. I loved the three chord mentality. I could do that. And I didn't even know my voice really at that time. So I was just singing, screaming out of an amp. So it sort of came out that way more of a punkish, but I would say pop punk. And I love the form of expression. And I think, you know, like most young kids that, you know, you have like a certain anger to you, you know, stick it to the man type of mentality. So <laughs> all of that really fit into what I wanted, you know, I guess what I felt comfortable or capable of writing and singing and whatnot. But the more I started singing and the more I started writing, I also developed just you know, a lot of people were saying like, oh, you sound like Janis Joplin. And my mom played Janis Joplin a lot. And so it was like, I had a huge influence of that sort of psychedelic blues. And I found that, you know, blues music is another, a bit easier if you're starting to play music and write music and things it's a little bit easier to do, I guess, even though I was a huge David Bowie fan, but that just felt too, that was a stretch to try to write and sing like that type of genre, but that was always in the back of my mind. So trying to make my simple three chord songs as I've gotten older, just a little bit more interesting. But yeah, I would say the heart of me was, there was like that punk. I love that three chord angst, you know, music. Absolutely. I, just, I, I don't know. You can't, I feel like you just can't beat it. It's just, there's something very, you know, guttural and just, I love it. So I love this because one of the things I wanted to ask you about today is I also find you super modest. And anytime I've definitely had some friends come and see you who hadn't seen you before. And anytime they see you, they are just blown away. Like they can't believe because they wind up meeting you either before or after the show. And they're like, I can't believe it's the same person up there. But I also love that you were really attracted to this attitude of punk. And I think no matter what genre you're performing in, you are so. There is a little bit of that punk attitude. I don't, that's not quite right. Like, I think that's a little misses the mark a little bit. But I'm wondering, like, so if you have this punk attitude and you're attracted to this punk attitude, then where does the modesty come from? And how come, like, how does that, how did those two things go together or not? Maybe they don't. I think the the punk attitude comes from my my insecurities. I think mm. like most artists, I have that sort of imposter complex and so hiding behind that sort of angst, you know, punk, you know, 
it's because they had nothing to prove. And I love slipping into that sort of mentality of like, you know what, if you don't like me, I don't care. I don't care, but I'm giving it my all. And I'm just, I'm here and I'm going to be here a thousand percent. And I was a huge Iggy Pop fan, still am as well. And I remember one of his quotes is that he hated, he goes, I want people to either love me or hate me. I don't want them. Oh yeah. You know, she's all right. Or they're all right. (laughs) So I kind of, when I step on the stage or sing or, you know, I have that, I keep that in the back of my mind. And I, and I guess that that's where I take it from. I take it from that punk mentality. It's like, I don't care. I'm just being me. And, but it it just really stems out of insecurities. Like, you know, it's a good act. I think like most artists, I shouldn't say most artists, but for me, and it's not an act because it's, it is very sincere what I'm doing, but there is, it's easy to fall into that sort of persona, like a, like a superhero character or something, I guess, in a way, you know? So is there something that you do? Cause I think imposter syndrome is common for everybody, right? Like all of us, no matter what we're doing, is there something that you do to, I don't know, to get ready to embody that superhero piece of, to, to put on your cape, so to speak, you know, how do you think about going from I'm Tina off stage to I'm Tina on stage? Well, I think it's a lot of it in my youth. It helped when I was, angry. And I think it was pretty easy to be, I always felt like, you know, in West Side Story, that that character, the girl that wanted to be in the gang, um, I'm forgetting what her name was, but at the time, but that's how I kind of felt like I was just, the, I was just, you know, one of those girls that just wanted to hang out with the guys and like, you know, being a rock and roll band and never and like everybody going, ah, go, you know, go away, little girl, like you can't do this. So it was kind of easy especially in the Minneapolis scene, it was very male orientated and a lot of male energy. And I wasn't like completely hardcore punk, like babes in Toyland type of thing, but I wasn't the replacements, you know, and I wasn't soul asylum, but I wanted to be sort of in that world. And it was easy to get angry about it, to get angry with the fact that I felt like I wasn't being taken seriously enough. And so for me, I I used the anger as a form of like getting ready to step into that. And then for me, as soon as the music starts playing, I just feel like I just get lost and I just feel, so it's a bit easy to fall into that mentality as well, that state, because at that point I am just like free falling, like the show is going to be what it's, but I, it is like the best state of mind for me to be up there singing and just getting sort of lost in it all. And then of course it's after the show that I'm completely analyzing and, and breaking <laughs> myself up over the coals. But during that time, it's it's great. <laughs> so is it still anger today that you used to get there or has it changed over the years as you've performed in all these different sort of variations and iterations of, you know, the types of music you do and so on and so forth? Yeah, it's changed now. I feel like, I think like anything that you do, you work on your craft, you work on what you do. I'm able to tap into that or have the confidence to go to that place. So I don't really need to get myself all all mad or, or all worked up. And that was the other thing I used to do too. I remember, this is so random as well, but there was some weird interview I read about Judy Garland and her saying that she had huge stage fright. So she would literally... Before she got on, she would just start going, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, just to get mad. <laughs> and, and then she would go out and then just be Judy Garland. I'm like, whoa, that just blew my mind. And I was like, wow. So I kind of, you know, that always stayed with me too, but I'm able to get into that sort of mindset. And I guess it's 
you know, it's a shield, it's a protection. It's, you know, I just, I love having that feeling and I take it very seriously. If I'm, if I'm going to sip on that stage, it's, it's, you are going to get a thousand percent of whatever I'm going <laughs> to do, you know? And so that is sort of my protective, more of my protective armor now. And then I judge it later, whether it was good or bad, you know, <laughs> type of thing. Yeah. So I want to ask you about that too, because you, you mentioned this idea of analyzing things after the performance, which I would say like for me personally, at least I analyze things before and then it like prevents me from doing stuff, right? The the analysis paralysis. Do you have to do something to not start analyzing, you know, beforehand or how does that, how do you postpone that until it sort of doesn't matter as much? Yeah, I don't, you know, it's the older I get, it's, it's really just trusting the process and just, and just really just trying to calm myself down because it does, it is, sometimes it does get hard like there have been times like playing with some musicians and people that are just I feel are just in my opinion just wow like I cannot believe that I'm sharing a stage with this person and so I need to really just tell myself it's like Tina you deserve to be here too don't get it in your head don't you know don't freak out you know it's all good but it's you know it's it can be a mind fuck totally but yeah so you know it's just that's the one thing I think getting older that I've appreciated so much because, and I think also just with the internet, how it's changed my mentality and my thought process about being an artist. Because when I was younger growing up, I just thought, well, first of all, I raked myself over the coals because I didn't get famous at 18. Like, you know, like all of your idols got famous. So then you're just judging yourself thinking, well, then it's not meant to be. If I'm not at my peak at 18, 19, then it, you know, then why am I even doing this? And then you're a woman and you're sending out your demo tapes and you're like in your twenties and people are saying you're too old, you know? So, and it's every step of the way, I feel like I'm building my mentality of, and letting go of those sort of, you know, fantasy, those are, my rock idols were so mythical and just so, I just thought that literally some God went down and touched them and like, you are Elvis <laughs> Presley and you are David Bowie. And then it isn't until you get older that you realize that how hard they worked at that, you know, and how it's a craft that you need to work at every single day. And so that has eased up so much more of the mental when I start getting that sort of insecurity of overanalyzing everything. I just think it just start chilling out about that a little bit more because of that, you know, learning that sort of process. Do you have a period of time or a specific project where you feel like you worked? particularly hard or that taught you how hard you could push yourself or how hard you could go? Does anything like that, do you have anything in particular that comes to mind? This guy, his his name was Pete Berg and he was a producer director and he was, he was an actor back in the eighties, early nineties. And he came to some of our shows in LA, the B-sides, you know, back in the day. And, and he said, I'm working on a film that I'd love for you to write a song with. And I didn't really know this guy. And I'm like, oh my God, me? Am I okay? And I'm like thinking, right, like this is going to happen. <laughs> and so, because he was like a big fan of the band, he loved it. And so it turned out to be Very Bad Things, the movie Very Bad Things that he was directing with. Oh my gosh, I'm forgetting her name at the moment. But anyway, so I was in back in LA and he calls me and he says, Tina, do you want to come over to Stuart's house? And write this song. And I'm like, Stuart. And I'm like, uh, now? And he's like, yeah, you know, Stuart Copeland. And I'm like, 
<laughs> a sewer cobra from the police sewer company. He's like, yeah. And like, then I'm trying to be cool. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Give me the address. So we went over there and I was, you know, freaking out. I'm like, I wasn't one of those songwriters that wrote with a lot of people. I didn't have a lot of experience writing with people. So that was intimidating. And then the fact that it was Stuart Copeland. Was <laughs> and so we just got in the room and Pete was just writing out lyrics. He wanted to create a song that was a lot like, uh, will the circle be unbroken? One of those old, you know, songs like that. And I just started messing around the guitar, just really just playing. And, and he's like, yeah, that, that. And I'm like, what, what that? And I'm like, oh, okay. And then we just started playing and then it just you know in my brain I'm completely freaking out you know <laughs> and then all of a sudden next thing I know about 45 minutes later we had this song and it was the ending credit song but that I look back and I'm like wow I can't believe that you know I had no idea that somebody would have said yeah you're going to go in a writing session with Stuart Copeland and it's going to be great I would have said no way <laughs> so that was a really that was a very cool experience and then when I toured with Double Trouble, that was the same thing. I, it was, we, the, my band, the B-Sides, we were taking a hiatus and Double Trouble just came out with a solo record and they were looking for a female rhythm guitarist, backup singer, and to sing a few of the tracks that Susan Tedeschi had recorded with them on the album. And I tried out, but I didn't think I was, you know, I'll see if I get it. And they, and so I got the job and did the full on tour and traveling in the bus with a bunch of guys. And that was like, wow, that was cool. Did that, didn't know I could do that, but wanted to, but, you know, but just to be just a backup singer, rhythm guitarist. I mean, secretly, that's what I've always wanted to be. Like, <laughs> I would have loved to have been the rhythm guitarist doing hitting that one note in the James Brown band, just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I just want to be that guy, you know, instead of doing the set lists and being the front person and all that, what that would feel like. So anyway, I got to have that a little bit with them. Why did you want to be the rhythm guitarist? That's so surprising to me, given how good you are at being the front person. <laughs> I know. Well, A, I love rhythm guitar. I just, you know, I just love it so much. And just to be able to concentrate on that would be fun. And plus, I was really burnt out with being the front person. And it was towards the end of being completely, I guess, disappointed with the music business and kind of what happened towards the end with the band. It just, it wasn't one of those really bad breakups where we ended up hating each other, but it was just super burnt out and just, oh, geez, I just want to play music. I don't want to have to stress out about what the label wants and what, you know, the fans is the song a hit or, or, you know, all that kind of thing. I just wanted somebody else to take care of all that. And I just needed to show up, play my guitar and sing my backup parts. The funny thing, what ended up happening was the lead singer that was on tour, he had to leave the tour. So then I became the front person doing the sets and doing, <laughs> <laughs> which was fine. It was actually, that was pretty cool too. I have to say that was uh that was the Stevie Ray Vaughan tour or? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Can you talk a little bit more about, if you're okay talking about it, the process of the band sort of fading out and you realizing that you just wanted to get out there and perform? Can you talk a little bit about what that was like to, um, I don't know, mentally to go through? Like, how did you realize that like, ah, this isn't actually what I want? Yeah. I think it was, I hate to say it, but I think it was basically... But the first moment of 
getting and in, going into the studio to to record our first album after being signed. And I really felt because again, I really thought a record label, they know what they're doing finally, you know, after 10 years of working my ass off and with the band and traveling all around the country, we we finally got to this point where we'd get the big brass ring and we're here. And and then it was like Dorothy, like going behind the curtain of the Wizard of Oz, like, <laughs> oh my God, actually it's just this dude and a bunch of college interns. And I guess it was just and, and of course, you know, you get older and why would they be so invested in in the one band? Like they have all these other bands, all these other artists. Everybody's trying to take care of everyone. And then it turned into, so how do I get attention from the label to make sure that I get? And so it became a whole nother game and an exhausting. Uh, it just I was just so left disappointed. And I wish that I would have just stayed because I had that point of like, do we do the Ani DeFranco route where we just stay independent? Right. Or do we get signed? But I loved, I mean, we got signed by Seymour Stein, which I was just such a, a fan of because I read all, you know, so many music business books and music books. And and I love the old school music men, who you know, the guys with the ears, <laughs> you know, and Seymour Stein being one of them. And so it was a little bit too hard to, to say no to but so that process was like as soon as we got signed and it just became harder and harder and just you could feel the whole band and the energy of the band we all just became just sort of disillusioned by it all and very frustrated and I loved you know everyone in my band so much and I got I just felt like I don't want this to end up where we're all of a sudden we start turning on each other and hating each other and I felt that that was going to happen if we stayed together any longer. So we basically broke up about two years after, two or three years after we got signed. Um, maybe a little bit longer, actually, when I think about it. But regardless, it was, yeah, the labels, I thought I'm not going to be one of those bands where the labels kill kill us, but, you know, kind of did. <laughs> so what was the first thing you did music-wise after that? Like once you, you know, made it through that, the sort of the down part of the the slump part of it so it was the double trouble tour oh it was okay yeah so i did that for about a year and they really wanted me to you know chris and tommy really said like hey let's do something and that was very difficult to say no to as well and because there was something in me that i felt like well you know i just came from one band and the one thing that i knew that i wanted to do was i just as a solo artist i just want to see you know just write my own music to do my own thing and it was very difficult to say no but I said I said no to them because I really wanted to just do my own record just to see what it was like and yeah they were kind of cool about it they ended up um well at least Chris did played drums on because after I did a solo record then I did like an all blues record kind of paying tribute to the Janis Joplin's and the Big Mama Thornton and all these blues women that I felt were such an influence in my life. And so Chris played on that, which was awesome. So that was great. But yeah, so that's sort of what happened after the the B-sides kind of like started fading out. And then I did the double trouble thing. And then I did my solo record, which was awesome and got to work with this. Uh, he's a bass player, producer in LA called Sheldon Gomberg. And he played with Ricky Lee Jones and Warren Zevon. And his Rolodex was 
I mean, the people that he got to play on my record was like huge. One of the hugest was, you know, being a big Elvis fan. <laughs> uh, James Burton from Elvis Presley's band, the guitarist James Burton, who's played with everybody. Sheldon was able to contact him and he came and played on a couple songs, which I was so blown away. And I still remember when he said, when he's like, Tina, so what do you want? What do you want me to do on this song? And I said, James, whatever Elvis wanted you to do, that's what I want you to do. <laughs> he's like, okay, I got it. So, but yeah, so that was really cool. That was a pretty cool experience to have all those musicians. And then learning that process was so different because I was so used to working with a band and you bring an idea and then everybody kind of contributes and you you know, you're jamming and you're bouncing off stuff. And, and it was really unusual to have a song idea and then all of a sudden have these hired guns come in. Oh, interesting. And just play on them. Like Ben Montage from Tom Petty's band, he played keyboards on it and just, yeah, I just had an amazing group of musicians that I was just like, oh, just sitting in the background. I was like, yeah, just playing whatever. And, and I loved it. It was, that was like a whole different experience, but, and I love that too. I love, I've learned to love both processes, you know, and, and that was, I guess, another thing kind of answering your other question. I'd never thought I could do something like that either. Yeah. And now it's, and I can appreciate both because I walked away from a band and thinking, oh, being responsible with all these other people. And then everybody's got to like put in their opinions. Wouldn't it be easier if I could just do my stuff and just like, yeah, just, and I've learned to appreciate how much I think I prefer being in a band in a way because I love that sort of being in a room with other musicians and really working out like what are we going to do and you know not just hiring somebody because he's a, an incredible musician and I and I love that process too but for me I find I think I really prefer the musicians in the room and just hammering out the ideas and just bouncing off things and seeing what comes out from it you know that's super interesting so that sounds like a you know a really like collaboration is a key skill there right and just learning how to work with others what is the key skill then if you're just hiring the the higher guns like what are you doing there that's different or what skill do you need that's different in order to get something out of them that you that's it is what you say kind of no matter what it, i think it's for me it's a lot of just letting go and that was the one thing going through that process i had no idea i was definitely more of a control freak than i thought i was <laughs> you know and it was so incredible just to trust somebody because Ben Montage, for instance, you know, he's an incredible musician and just relying on his instincts of like, okay, here's the song, here's the progression, here's the vibe play, you know, and take a few passes and you just sort of, it's like, wow. So he's not the guy that, you know, with my kind of growing up with a band of guys that, we're all kind of learning the process together. So it's kind of like, we're all kind of in each other's parts and in each other's you know ideas. I'm like, yeah, go, go there and do this. And, and no, I want more of that. And having to like, just trust somebody because of their complete, because of their talent, their experience, their everything that they bring to the table, I can just let go of all that and just have them just come up with whatever they feel is the best vision for the song or the best feel for the song. And I've always wanted to be, because I know that I feel like what I might've read, like David Bowie was a lot like that. He would just pluck these musicians that, you know, I love this drummer. I love this guitar player. I love like the Robert Fripp working with Robert Fripp with the heroes and low album and just, yeah, just 
here's the song, just play whatever, do all your weird, whatever, just that's what I want. And, and I just thought, whoa, like, how do you, that just seems so, when I was younger, just so like, how could you just let go like that and just let somebody just do that to your song? And, you know, it takes a while, but I just appreciate that so much too, because it's, that's another form of like what I love about working with the musicians and just being an artist and just like, yeah, here you go. Here's the canvas. You paint whatever you want on that. And just, let's just see what happens. And I've just really learned to love that too. It's yeah. Does that mean that the songs that you write turn out differently than you expect? Yes, for sure. And sometimes better and sometimes, you know, okay. Like, but I feel like I'm not, you know, I'll never, I'll always listen to everything and think, oh, I should have done this or oh, I wish. <laughs> so it's, it's very difficult, but I do. I love the, it always turns out regardless if it becomes something that I really thought it was going to be or not. I just, I'm always amazed by the process and like what people come up with. And I'm just, you know, just blown away. And I just, and that's what I love about music so much. It could just be that one note that the bass player comes in and then just my mind goes, whoa, that is so amazing. Or sometimes it's, sometimes what I appreciate getting older is the space that they leave. Like where I think it should be, you know, fill it here and this. And they're like, no, I'm going to like do the one and then leave the space. And it's like, and it's like, yes, that's exactly what it needed, you know, and it needed nothing, (laughs) you know? So it just, that's what I appreciate. There was a time that I was freaking out getting older in the music business. And a few years ago, right before I turned 50, I read this book and how it was all, it was, I wish it was, I could remember, it was something about music. And it was this guy that wrote it, his, both of his parents were classical, classical musicians. And he, so he became, he loved classical music, but he also loved Bjork and, you know, Radiohead and David Bowie and Bob Dylan. So he wrote this book on a perspective of like how each artist comes to their craft. And one of the things that was so interesting that it just really, you know, rock music is like I was saying earlier, people usually just peak at such a young age, you know, their hits or their energy or their whatever, their songwriting. And in classical music, there was he was saying that composers, they hated their early work. They only appreciated their, because you have to keep working at your craft. And it's like, you know, Beethoven hated his early symphonies. It's like, no, my latest work is what matters. This is, this is the good work. And so shifting my mental state of not getting so down on, you know, myself, like I'll never be able to write songs like I used to when I was young. I'm like, well, good, because I should be moving as an artist and as a person. And as, you know, I should just be, I'm finding that my songwriting is is getting simpler, but that simplicity, it's become more complicated, you know, trying to really, instead of doing the punk rock, you know, this is my emotions and you're going to know exactly what I feel right now, by the way, I'm screaming. Now I can do it through the nuances of melody and lyric and chord progressions and things that I never, that felt too sophisticated when I was younger and just appreciating that now and like sort of letting all of that go, you know, my insecurities, like what I judged myself as like what a true songwriter is. And if I'm qualified enough to be a true songwriter or a true artist or a true singer type of thing. And it's been, I've rejuvenated my, I guess my inspiration and my vision of being 
a singer songwriter through that of just getting older and trusting the process and just really just doing the work in the craft of it, of it all. Oh man, I have so many places I want to go. I'm going to start with the, one of the things you said was moving or growing as an artist and a person. Is there something that you do to do that? Is there something you do to sort of cultivate this growth in yourself? Because I think, you know, that mindset is really critical for anything and anybody. I'm curious to hear how you think about it. Yeah, I constantly just always just scouring the internet for new artists, new articles that I can read and and to keep myself my mind constantly open to just new things, new techniques, new whatever it may be to keep my mind like constantly learning because it's, you know, that is just so key of just keep teaching yourself, keep learning and showing your new things. The other thing is I've got two good friends who are teachers of high school in high school students. And I always ask them, so what do the kids listen to you these days? <laughs> you know, what is, you know, what is the, and that, I love that too, because it's just when I think about, because right now I'm just really, I love Boy Genius and Phoebe Bridgers and Lucy Ducas and Julian Baker. And their songwriting is just so, I just find it so interesting because it's so different from when I was their age, like a young woman in my twenties, like compared to like how they write and their production and it's so funny to me because they are so almost like, especially Phoebe's like, she's sort of punk on the outside, but you listen to her melody and her lyrics and it's so very delicate and very, or at least some of the boy genius stuff, you know, is for me. And I just find that dichotomy that it's just like, whoa, that's just so interesting. And I feel like the other thing that I get so fascinated by is that, you know, I grew up on three chord blues, R&B, punk, it's, and then you throw in like a band like the Beatles that had so much melody. So those worlds were always kind of interchanging. But then there's a lot of young songwriters that you have the influence of hip hop. And so how they sing and their phrases, like I'm so used to like an Aretha Franklin phrase or a, even what my mom used to play, Barbara Streisand. You know, you've got these vocalists that or Frank Sinatra, their phrasing is so much more melodic and floating and then you've got these younger singers that it's so much more rhythm because of the hip hop influence. And I find that so interesting and also frustrating because I'm like, oh gosh, now I'm going to have to write more lyrics. <laughs> you know, <because laughs> I can sing three words and hold it out in my style for progression. And, and now you've got to like, you know, to have more of that, you know, staccato, like melodic lyric sort of way of singing, which I just find interesting, like even like someone like Adele, who's a very, you know, I guess, old school vocalist, but she has that hint of hip hop, like in how she phrases things. And I don't know, I love that kind of stuff. So I, I guess that's how I try to keep myself from getting too stuck in a rut or whatever. So there's certain things that I can think about and work on and not that I'll ever be, you know, uh, writing like that but I can always have it in my mind and I have that to kind of keep it interesting I guess and work towards yeah you, so you mentioned your your two friends who teach high school is any other favorite sources to get inspired by or to find new music or to find new ideas there'll be just certain Spotify Spotify playlists that I get turned on to that that's a easy one I'm always just trying to just constantly keeping my ears open to whether it be TV shows, to articles, to 
you know, uh, movies to anything, you know. And as as we know, I mean, now music is just there's so much out there. I so mean, much. so much, and just and also just really good, really good music. Like, I mean, what a time, you know. In one way, it's it's sort of frustrating because as an artist, it's like you are bringing a grain of sand to a thousand mile beach, and you're just hoping somebody will able to hear your work but you can't think about that too much <laughs> but at the same time if you're a lover of music it's, it's such an incredible time to be you could go anywhere and you'll just find like artists that have never played a live show in their life but they're just writing and making amazing music and I just I, I love that excites me you know and that that helps kind of propel you to keep going forward as well you mentioned uh, just a couple of minutes ago, this learning how to let go. And then now you're just talking about sort of being that grain of of sand right on this wide beach of stuff. And I think, so I agree with you, it can be daunting, but at the same time, you're kind of like, well, if I'm just a grain of sand, then it's also easy. So I'm curious, you know, how do you go about letting go? It might've came from being young and knowing that I was different. I mean, I felt like I sort of looked a bit different from everyone because I dressed as a tomboy. I, I loved, you know, before I even knew that I was gay, I sort of gravitated towards being a tomboy, dressing more masculine and all these things. So I was very used to it at, at a young age being sort of looked at. And I needed to develop that sort of shell of like, I don't care. I needed to develop that shell of I don't care what people say or if they're looking at me and I weirdly I turned it into I don't know how but when I think about it I turned out as like standing out like that as a strength and that I used that sort of as this is going to be my superpower my strength of like not I don't care and so I don't really know it's just that weird body where you just kind of go in your body and I think that it's developed back then when I felt I was standing out and it made me feel scared and insecure, but I'm just turned it around and said, nope, this is my strength. And so I think anytime I'd put myself, especially getting on a stage, I mean, when I first, I remember I wanted to be a singer at a very young age and like, and I tried out for this musical when I was, <laughs> in, when I was in like fourth grade or something and got up and sang in front of the music teacher and my lip was shaking so bad that I, cause I was so nervous and the teacher wrote, you know, sorry, you know, voice too weak, too shaky, blah, blah. And I was devastated. And I got to be in the choir in the, in the group choir in the back. And I'm just like, Oh, geez, I really wanted this. And so the next thing that happened was I was then cut to a couple of years later and my sister was in high school and she was, I know this is a very strange story. She was doing this musical performance and we were like in the audience watching her in this little high school theater. And there was a, something happened technically where the show got delayed. And so somebody said, Hey, does anyone have a joke or does anybody want to come down and tell a joke? And all my friends were like, Shalesky, go down there, do it. You know, you're funny. And I'm like, Ugh. so I don't know what, you know, made me want to do this. So I went down and all of a sudden, same thing happened. My lip is going crazy. I'm just so nervous. And I just, all of a sudden I told the audience, I'm like, sorry, I'm really nervous. I'm just going to hold my lip and tell this joke. And then people start <laughs> laughing 
And I, I don't even remember what joke I told, but something clicked. I'm like, ah, if I'm completely honest with people, wow. then I don't, because th- my lips stopped shaking. I didn't feel, I'm just like, oh, this actually feels weirdly good to be completely, completely just honest in your vulnerability. Like, wow. guess what, everybody? I'm nervous and don't want to be here. My friends told me to come up here and here I am. And, and then all of a sudden I just, then I could do it. And so I've just... So I guess that's what I pulled from that experience, like to always in these situations playing live or even writing, it's like to let myself go and knowing that wow, that is where the good stuff happens. I and- mean, that is such a powerful realization to have. It took me like 39 years to get there. So <laughs> the fact that you had it when you were so young is incredible. I mean, that's really amazing. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't, honestly, I have no idea where that came from, but it was so weird. But I still, it's embedded in my mind that, yeah, that's how it happened. Wow, so amazing. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna move back to the craft here a little bit more because I have a question for you about performing live versus recording or prepping for an album. Do you think about those two things differently? Is there something in particular that you hone in on for either or that you know? How do you think about what you need to do for those two things and how they might be similar or different? Yes, they are completely different. And, and I love them both for, you know, the obvious reasons. I mean, recording, I love getting in there and really pushing yourself as a singer, as a songwriter, as a collaborating with people and all those places it it takes you. And I love that. I mean, you develop these intense relationships with everyone in the studio, even, you know, I remember like even the, the Aaron guy that's bringing the coffee and the tea and you end up loving him too. It's like, yeah, you're my best friend, man. I mean, it's it's such a beautiful, amazing, you know, that I love that about the studio. Like everybody has this common denominator. They just want to make a good record. And that's really just so cool. And then the live thing is I just, the only thing that I love keep to working with is, is to make sure that that band trusts. I love that I, as the front person, it's like, just go with me, just come with me. If I go here, follow me and just don't worry if it something happens, you know, I'm good at the shell game. Look over here. <laughs> like, and, you know, we can do that and we can get through this, you know, so it's a much more, it's almost the same feeling, but it's so much more of a concentrated when you're doing it live. It's like all that sort of bubbling and the weeks long, month long process of recording an album it's all of a sudden very concentrated in the live situation so they're the same but similar I love the rawness and the unpredictability and the you know the audience you know of course the audience is such a huge part of the live thing so it's I love both processes so much but I I would say I feel more confident with the live thing and I love the sort of like oh now it's gone and yeah so it's like there's a way too that that you kind of you're easier on yourself because there's nothing you can do. If I messed up the lyric, if I messed up this, it's like, oh, well, what can you do? But when you've done it on tape, that is a bit more nerve wracking where you listen to it and you just know you should have actually sung that lyric or you should have went to that note or you should have like, why did you repeat that chorus again? You know, I don't know. It's all those things that you constantly criticize yourself or go back to, you know? So I love that sort of when the live thing is done, it's, done you know those artists that you know I remember listening to like I forget his name but he was just famous for 
he would paint something and then he would just burn it. <laughs> and I love that sort of like just being able just to let it go. It's like, who cares? It's it's done. It's out there. And it's there's nothing you can do now. So well, that's that's really cool. So uh, I'll ask you one more question and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what you've got coming up next. But um, so you mentioned trust performing live. Do you have to do something to build that trust with people? Is it just performing all the time with folks or and you've also performed with so many people. So, you know, where does that trust come from when you step on on stage? It's I think it's the moment that they know it's like when the downbeat happens and I step in. That's what I try to do because I I'm a believer of actions rather than words. So I want these guys and especially some of these guys have played with so many people, too. Like I'm and I'm speaking about when I just jumped up on stage with certain people and I know that they don't know me. And how am I going to build this trust and how am I going to? Because there's that, you know, that thing too. It's like when they've got somebody I know that I'm in a position where, oh geez, I want to do the ending here. I want to, you know, extend this part here. How am I going to get these guys to trust me? Like, trust me, I can feel it from the audience. We we need to do this. We need to go here. And how am I going to make sure that the drummer, like this guy, they'll take me seriously instead of going, why, you know, what do you think you're doing? You know, we're not going there. And so it's just an attitude and it's a confidence that most musicians, that unspoken thing that they get, it's like, oh, okay, okay, we'll follow her. This is, this is cool. And, but there's been times where it's, which I cannot stand. Like I, one of the drummers that I had had, I did end up letting him go because he would never really listen to me and I, and, or watch me if, you know, I want to pick up the song here or, break here or do whatever because it's so important especially for me like I just love reading the room and the people and like if I want to take it somewhere else then just follow me and there's nothing worse than that buzzkill of somebody that just doesn't see it and doesn't go there and then my mind I'm like oh man yeah you're out (laughs) I know no more (laughs) but you know and it freaks me out some bands and some musicians are you know I've been like when I, cause I love talking to other musicians and people and like how they do it. And there's like some bands that like, Oh yeah, this is our 35 minute set. And this is our 55 minute set. And this is our 15 minute set. And like, they'll have the same sets and they play it the same way. And that just freaks me out because I'm just not that I'm, I like, you know, sometimes I'm just in a total mood of playing all my slow songs and too bad if people show up and they want a rock song, it's like, eh, I'm kind of not in the mood for that. So I'm going to do this and, <laughs> I don't think I've ever played the same set twice in my whole life because it's just, I feel like music is so much about feeling and about emotion and, you know, and I feel that's where I come alive and like, that's where I feel inspired. It's just going through just a very emotional, like what's going on, you know, maybe I should try to be, sometimes I think I should try to be a little bit more structured, but I don't know. I, you know, everybody's different. And I guess that's what I like about, you know, my process, I guess. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a little bit more leaning into yourself there, right? Leaning into your vulnerability and sort of doing what you want. Exactly. You mentioned being able to read the crowd and sort of what they want and sort of, you know, responding to that in the moment. Is that a skill that you developed over time? Is it something that you feel like you've always done since your early days? Where did that come from? Yeah, I think it came from probably being the middle child for one and <laughs> wanting to get the attention of everybody. So there's that. And then I think when I became fascinated with 
like someone like Elvis Presley. I mean, most of the, like even David Bowie, there's a certain, especially David Bowie, the theatrics and you watch him and he is definitely playing to the audience and creating a show. And same with, you know, like someone like Elvis Presley that just, I just, I love that because I just feel like it's, I just take that part of my job. Like I want people to forget their, their, anything that they're being stressed out about, or they had a bad day or they had whatever. I just feel like as my job as an artist, I'm going to take you, we're going to go somewhere and I am going to read that. And I'm going to do it as best I can. And I, that's part of the whole process that I love. I get into so much and, you know, it's weird. I know that some people have it and some people don't, and I don't know how or why, but I just really feel like I can tell, like when people are feeling that they need, you know, I'll switch songs just because like, oh no, this is like people, they didn't respond to that too well. So let's try this, you know, and then just try to build from there. And I love that kind of, I love that kind of thing so much, you know, cause you really feel it. And it's like, because it, cause I feel it too. And it's like, it's a very mutual flowing back and forth thing, which is very cool. That's super cool. So in true Tina fashion, you have a bunch of really great different projects going on at the moment. So can you talk a little bit, you have a jazz album coming out in the fall. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, where did that come from? What are you working on there? And yeah, just. Yeah. So that was again, like, you know, again, when I was saying earlier about before turning 50 and just feeling like there's got to be something more than this and just, you know, doing this, I guess the, I was feeling that rut again about music and whatnot. And so I, I got into, suddenly I just, I mean, I've always loved like Billie Holiday, Nina Simone and jazz in general. I just, I've had a love of that music as well. And, but always felt too intimidated as an artist to go there. And then, you know, it became bored and I'm like, I need to learn something. And I think one of the biggest things was to, so, well, it first began when I was doing like an Elvis tribute band and Elvis, even those songs that Elvis sang, it was like, whoa, like this is hard. And I always remember that. I thought that was difficult, but then cut to like, okay, I'm going to just, because I just feel it, let's do some Frank Sinatra, Nina Simone, Billy Holiday. And I was doing it as just sort of an exercise for me as a vocalist and as an artist. And I cannot believe, and that's another thing that I cannot believe how it improved my singing so much. And because really literally becoming, and I'm sure as you know, what I love about singing in a jazz ensemble is that the vocalist is just another instrument. You know, you're not the front person or the, you're just another instrument in the process. And it is your job to sing the melody. And if you want to make your little nuances, that's fine. But just, you know, here's the structure. And, you know, there is no where I was used to in the, you know, I couldn't do the, like, if I went to the guys like, yeah, let's do that course again. Like, wait, you mean the B section, you know, jazz players, like, <laughs> yeah. hey, my chart says we're going to be, and I'm like, <laughs> so, and I, I found that so fascinating as well. It's like, I'm just the vocalist and I can literally play around in my, in this instrument, in my voice and see as a, you know, picture myself as a horn or a, whatever, just to create that sound and that tone and that, that mood. And like, how am I going to do that? How am I, if I can't like run around on stage and get people to understand that I'm feeling this right now, I need to do it just with my voice within this melody. And, you know, sometimes I feel like it's a bit, you know, you get even 
where sometimes people like think that you can get so creative with a whole bunch of choices and, and all these things, but actually try, you know, like how they said, try writing a three, three word sentence and describe exactly what you want to say. And so I found that same process of like, I'm so limited here. And how do I convey this with my vocal that I am feeling very sad or I'm feeling very happy or I'm so in love or I'm so, you know, and that just, I found that so fascinating. I'm just loving it. So doing that. And I thought, I want to document this now. So that's where's the birth of the record. And so it was right before COVID. It's been a very long process, but one, I'm very happy that it has taken this long because even though it is much less of a production to do instead of like a full scale rock band and all this stuff. And it's just a very small ensemble playing these kind of simple, but complicated songs. And that is, it's hard, you know, and it's again, really working on those nuances of like, uh, where to go, like push more air, push less air, like, you know, hit this note, go like, I don't know, it's been incredible. And I'm just really, at first I thought, well, this would be kind of a cool side project, but as we're nearing the end of it, I'm really proud of this project. I'm really like, wow, this is kind of cool. So yeah, that's really great. I'm looking forward to it to finally getting out there in the world. So cool. Yeah. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you're you're doing the Quattro project named after Susie Quattro. So that sounds pretty cool too. It's, it's, it's an all female group, right? Yes. And And say more. Yeah. And so, yeah. So that became, again, you know, we're talking about, you know, like my process is growing older as an artist and one of the things I didn't real, really realize due to like ego and insecurities, I found collaborating with people like, and I mean, not my band, but like if somebody said, hey, Tina, do you want to write a song? It really, it scared the crap out of me. I'm like, ah. huh. you know, I, I found it difficult. And what's been so great is, again, is getting older and just collaborating with people like in the, and I've never been so like free in the songwriting process of like, honestly not caring like there'd been a time like I'd be way too afraid to show somebody a song that I was working on and let them go ah that sucks or yeah why don't you try doing this I I wasn't prepared I couldn't really let myself go there and now being able to do that with the you know there's one in particular Molly Mayer who's like this incredible artist in Minneapolis and great singer-songwriter on her own right and but we've been friends for so long and we kept for years talking like we should do something. And it just, all of a sudden we were, I was playing a show with her and we were up in the dressing room and we just started talking and we just started playing and like, and just wrote a song like that. I'm like, that was really cool. And very easy, you know, surprisingly. And so we're like, let's do something. So it took us like about six years to finally like, Hey, <laughs> find the time. And it's like, let's do this. And so, and then there's, a bunch of other female musicians in Minneapolis that are so incredible. And we're just, we've just been tapping them as well. And it's been, I didn't realize that it took me this long to be just, and there's obviously, I love working with my guy friends and guy musicians. I love them, but I've never, and I never really thought about it. Like, Oh, I'm a woman and I need to only work with women. Or I only, like I never think about in terms like that. When I think about myself in music, I really honestly I feel like I'm just sexless, if that makes sense. <laughs> sure. You know, it's like, and it's really weird to say, but I just don't even think of a gender. I just singing and I'm just writing. And so 
it's been very interesting being in a room in a studio with, you know, female producer engineer with a all female run studio to all females in the band. And it was like, I was like, wow. And, the, and it's super and cool. I can tell you that the snack center is very clean and very, <laughs> so that's one good benefit. Um, but no, but it's, so that's very exciting too. It's like, it's a different form of inspiration, you know, and it's being vulnerable with all these women as well. And us bitching about and talking about the music business and how similar, you know, are. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's been really cool. And that's, pretty yeah quattro is very that's an exciting thing on the horizon that hopefully that will be by next summer we'll have something so cool yeah okay well i have one last question for you then which is just where can people find you if they want to know more about tina or find what you're up to where should they go well my website is a good you know tina shaleski.com and instagram tina shaleski um instagram is is a good place and you should spell your last name so that people listening can find it <laughs> it is s c h l i e s k e perfect <laughs> dot com yes and uh yeah so those are probably the two best places for sure and of course my music is on spotify and you know and uh itunes and all that good stuff Cool. Yeah. And we'll link to all this stuff in the show notes as well. So people can find it there and uh, try to make it as easy as possible for folks. So they don't have to spell too much on their own. I know. exactly. <laughs> you know, Andy, that's like the, you know, the funniest times always after a show and people are like, all like, oh my gosh, you're so great. Like, what's your name? I want to be able to go find you. I'm like Tina Shaleski and watching the thrill, like, see <laughs> their eyes, like they don't know how to spell it. They don't know how to say it. They don't even know. Like, and they're like, uh-huh. And I'm like, yeah, okay, there goes another another lost. <laughs> I could have been somebody if my name was Smith. <laughs> oh, so good. Well, yeah. Tina, thank you so much for your time. This was really awesome. I could go on for hours, so you'll have to come back and do it again sometime in the future. Definitely. And Andy, thank you so much for asking me to do this. This has been amazing. Yeah, I just loved it. And I loved, um, I mean, I didn't even know a lot of this stuff about your, your background. So I'm so glad I got to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. No, thank you. Thank you so much. Alrighty, thanks. I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. Thanks once again for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe if you enjoyed this podcast. And we'll catch you next time on Music Lessons. Music Lessons.